Hey everybody, I'm Jason Mangum. And I'm Mark Anderson. And this is another segment of World Impact News. Today we're going to be talking about the subject of Brexit. And so, which happened January 31st That's of correct. 2020. And so, there's a lot of information that we have that, that Mark is even going to be sharing. I know recently you had an interview and actually talked with someone from the UK, a uh, reliable source. That's about correct some of the things that are happening in Brexit. So if you have some questions about Brexit, I hope we can answer them all today for you. So Mark? Yeah, it's a tough thing to navigate. Um, Starting in January of 2016, the British people, by a reasonable margin, voted to leave the European Union. The UK voted to leave the European Union. And since then, there has been a torturous and tumultuous process, three and a half years going on for here. And a lot of people, largely due to the chaos generated by the mass media cartel, especially the sensationalistic British oh, press, yeah. notorious, right? <laughs> uh, due to that chaos and confusion that that media often sows, they haven't really been able to make head nor tail of this. And I'll admit it's been tough for me, and I don't always pay attention to this issue, lots of other things on our plate. But what I have found since last October of 2019, when I attended a Chicago Council on Global Affairs meeting, I found that I began to get a handle on this. And there I talked to, I asked a question to Zanny Minton Beddoes, the economist chief, the Economist Editor-in-Chief, in fact, of that magazine. And she happens to be a member of the Bilderberg Steering Committee and the Bilderberg Group, the notorious insiders group that we've talked about before on this right. show. And I asked her a question, and we'll hear more about that in a minute. And in fact, we'll see a clip on that in a few minutes. Um, and since then, I started following this much more closely. That was October 4 of 2019 in Chicago. And I've been following this more closely. And I recently spoke with Mike Robinson, a very knowledgeable Brexit guy from the UK Column News. That's at ukcolumn.org. I've been on that uh, TV show before, TV internet show before, Mm -hmm. internet format, but it's like a television show. And I've been on there going back to 2018 and before, including when I was in the UK in 2018. And I talked to him very recently, and he filled me in on a lot of the realities of Brexit. Um, before we get into Mike, uh, what Mike had to say, though, which is kind of a reality check, it's interesting also that Brexit Party member Nigel Farage, he's that colorful British politician that gives a lot of very perky speeches and right. really knows how to give it to the globalists. <laughs> he's notorious for that. He spoke on January 29th, two days before the January, January 31 divorce the divorce of the UK from the EU. And he had a lot of interesting things to say. And the best way of covering that is we'll now play a clip of Nigel Farage addressing the European Parliament, where he's been a member since 1999, first as a member of UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, and then more recently as the leader of the Brexit Party. And here's what Nigel had to say to the European Parliament two days before the Brexit divorce came along. So this is it, the final chapter, the end of the road. A 47-year political experiment that the British, frankly, have never been very happy with. My mother and father signed up to a common market, not to a political union, not to flags 
anthems, presidents, and now you even want your own army. For me, it's been 27 years of campaigning and over 20 years here in this parliament. I'm not particularly happy with the agreement we're being asked to vote on tonight, but Boris has been remarkably bold in the last few months, and Ms. von der Leyen, he's made it clear, he's promised us there'll be no level playing field. And on that basis, I wish him every success in the next round of negotiations. I really do. But the most significant point is this. What happens at 11pm this Friday, the 31st of January, 2020, marks the point of no return. Once we've left, we are never coming back, and the rest, frankly, is detail. We're going, we will be gone. And that should be the summit of my own political ambitions. I walked in here, as I've said before, you all thought it was terribly funny. Uh, you stopped laughing in 2016. But my view has changed of Europe since I, since I joined. In 2005, I saw the Constitution that had been drafted by Giscard and others. I saw it rejected by the French in a referendum. I saw it rejected by the Dutch in a referendum. And I saw you in these institutions ignore them, bring it back as a Lisbon Treaty and boast you could ram it through without there being referendums. Well, the Irish did have a vote and did say no and were forced to vote again. You're very good at making people vote again, but what we've proved is the British are too big to bully, thank goodness. So I became, I became an outright opponent of the entire European project. I want Brexit to start a debate across the rest of Europe. What do we want from Europe? If we want trade, friendship, cooperation, reciprocity, we don't need a European Commission. We don't need a European Court. We don't need these institutions and all of this power. And I can promise you, both in UKIP and indeed in the Brexit Party, we love Europe. We just hate the European Union. It's as simple as that. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping this begins the end of this project. It's a bad project. It isn't just undemocratic, it's anti-democratic, and it puts in that front row. It gives people power without accountability. People who cannot be held to account by the electorate, and that is an unacceptable structure. Indeed, there's an historic battle going on now across the West, in Europe, America, and elsewhere. It is globalism against populism, and you may loathe populism, but I tell you a funny thing, it's becoming very popular. <laughs> and it has great benefits. No more financial contributions. No more European Court of Justice. No more common fisheries policy. No more being talked down to. No more being bullied. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. And we'll look forward in the future to working with you as sovereign... If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. Could we please remove the flags? Mr. Farage, could we remove the flags, please? That's it, it's all over. Finished.
Very colorful, very to the point. I love what he said that jumps out more than anything is he doesn't just think that Britain leaving the EU should be where it ends. What he said there was this should go further and dissolve the 28-member European Union itself. The European Union that started as the European coal and steel community coming out of World War II as the Bilderberg Group formed in 1954 and had their first meeting in Holland. Then it became, around that time, the common market. And this went through a lot of metamorphosis, a lot of phases. And in 1973, there was another British vote, and that was to join what was then the European Economic Community. And that was 47 years ago. So the British voted in a referendum to join what became the European Union, and then they voted in another referendum in 2016 to leave the European Union. So there were actually two referendums. Sometimes we forget that. Mm -hmm. But what he said there, and you know, it's very interesting. Uh, He said, I want Brexit to start a debate across the rest of Europe. What do we want from Europe? If we want trade, friendship, cooperation, reciprocity, we don't need a European Commission. We don't need a European court. We don't need these institutions. And so what he's saying there, and as you heard in that video, he's saying get rid of the EU itself. Now that's one path that this could take. But adding a more sobering note, but a good and helpful reality check, Mike Robinson of UK Column News told me that while January 31 marked the divorce, not long after this uh, June 2016 vote happened to approve Brexit, not long after that happened, uh, there was a basic decision made that this would be broken into two pieces. One would be the divorce process, which consummated and reached its pinnacle January 31st, 2020. And the other is the tougher part. As they say, here comes the hard part. Right. What's the hard part? The transition. Working out where Britain and the EU will cooperate, where, where they'll separate, and how this will all pan out. And what Mike Robinson told me in a February 3rd, 2020 interview was, that at the very bare minimum, this is going to take until the end of this calendar year, literally December 31st of 2020, but that this could also last up to two years or more to get the full transitional phase done coming out of the January 31 divorce. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of moving pieces, maybe to use an analogy, but there's a lot of tentacles that are tied into different realms and segments from military to government trade. to parliament to trade, yes. economics, health care, uh, all the regulatory. Oh, Because we, as we know, the European Union has so many regulations. That's how they get a lot of their tentacles and things established and, and where they really impact and, and control nations is through regulations. You know, yes. there's always been that, that promise of... Um, we're going to help you. We'll help you fund our uh, different things, different projects, different infrastructure, education, schools, all these different things. But you have to do this. You have to do it our way. You have to use our supply. You have to use our chains of where you get the products, how you get the products, and things like that. So there's this regulatory, even in itself, nightmare that's going to have to be dealt with. And, and that's exactly what frustrated uh, the Britons was that is this 28-member EU 
um, that was nurtured along, as one Bilderberg member admitted long ago, by the Bilderberg Group in its early in its early phases, mm-hmm. it became a regulatory albatross around the neck of the yeah. average Brit. And part of that was requiring uh, too much of an open borders policy where too many people in too short of a period of time, where we heard that before, were pouring into Britain from North Africa, from the Middle East, from Eastern Europe, and other locales. And part of that brought on by the very Western wars that Britain and NATO and the U.S. were involved in, in their nation building over the years, uh, that's curtailed somewhat under Trump, but it, it is still happening under him, but it was a lot more under George W. Bush and Obama and Clinton. The nation building, um, especially 2011, the destruction of Libya, uh, where NATO had a hand. And so a lot of these people were driven out of these countries by the very West, Western powers that created and have sustained the EU and have tried to keep Britain in it. Right. So yet the EU turns around and requires these open borders of the UK to where the the character of their country is changing too quickly. They can't assimilate all these people from across the world. Right. And the average Briton, and I've talked to some of them in the Rio Grande Valley that I've seen here in South Texas that have uh, moved here. I, I talked to a guy named Morley from the UK at a dentist here in the valley, and he said that England just isn't what what it once was. That its character is, has changed so drastically that he had to move to America. Yeah, and the Britons want some semblance of sovereignty, some semblance of charting their own destiny. Right, and that's a natural human instinct. It's not bigotry. It's not hatred. It's a natural instinct. It's a natural inclination. And yes, you have to do it right with humane intentions and, and nonviolently and constitutionally according to the rule of law, a fair law. Right. You know. And and so the Brits chose to exit in June of twenty sixteen. If I said January of twenty sixteen at any point that was a mistake. But they chose to, to make this exit, the Brexit exit. But as um Nigel Farage explained there's a there's a strong attitude uh, a, a strong spirit a strong awakening where people want to bust out and they want to live their own lives again and so Nigel Farage uh, he he really expressed the spirit of it but then getting into the the harder facts as Mike Robinson of UK column told me this divorce is only on paper as of February 1st when the sun came up the next mm-hmm. day Nothing changed in terms of farming rules or fishing rules or trade rules or customs rules, travel rules or immigration rules. Nothing changed. Brexit hasn't yeah. actually happened yet. That's what we have to get across here. Yeah. At this point, nothing has changed. And until the future relationship between the two is agreed upon, then nothing will change, as Mike, who's followed this issue from the beginning, very ably explained. And then one of his colleagues at UK Column News, American-born Patrick Henningson of 21stCenturyWire.com, I also had a talk with him, and he explained many more things about this. And uh, one of the important things to watch for among many is that there is a secretive European intervention initiative, the EII, Mm. partly founded by the UK in 2017, along with nine other European nations, and that presents some potential snags for properly finalizing the Brexit transitional mode, the transitional phase. And so 
There is no formal agreement, as some British political figures have stated. It's true. Through one interpretation, there is no formal agreement that Britain is part of the EU's new military union. They have a budding, nascent military union that's mm-hmm. growing. But, as Mike Robinson explained and as Patrick Henningsen corroborated, this organization, the EII, with the UK as a partner, intends to contribute to the ongoing efforts within the European Union to deepen defense cooperation between the UK and the EU. And this deepening of defense cooperation could, possibly, have a negative effect on British sovereignty and therefore mitigate against the freedom and independence that UK voters sought when they approved the Brexit referendum in the first place. See, so military alliances and entanglements could make a Brexit exit not go all the way. Yeah, so there are some some chain links that are not easily separated just because Cor- of how some things were formulated. And I know, I think we have another video that we're going to show of you um, in Chicago. Correct. This is me questioning, as I indicated earlier, Zanny Minton-Beddoes, the editor-in-chief of The Economist magazine. She's a member, she's British-born, she's a member of the Bilderberg Steering Committee and the Bilderberg Meetings Conferences. She's a frequent attendee there. This is me at a Chicago Council on Global Affairs meeting, October 4th, 2019, asking her if a Brexit exit can really happen if Britain has too many entanglements, particularly a military one with the EU. So here's me questioning her, and here's her answer. Uh, Hello, Mark Anderson. Great program. I understand there exists a military union in the EU that Britain is a part of, or British military assets are a part of it, and that a lot of EU laws and regulations have been embedded in the British legal code. Is it possible that you could have a Brexit on paper, but everything is so inextricably wound together that it would never really all the way happen? On the military side, or um, I, I think there are some areas that um, you will want to maintain. Both sides will see it in their interest to maintain as close a links as possible. But the the EU is a rules-based organization, and All of these links have been built up on the basis of us being a member state of the EU, as a result of which certain legal obligations and rights come. If we're no longer a member, then, you know, that is is ended. And so we have to kind of rebuild those links. Um, And that will take an enormous amount of time. And how easily it's done depends on whether there is willingness to negotiate that and willingness to work on it on both sides. And that, in turn, I think, depends on the terms of our departure. So if we, if we have a negotiated withdrawal um, where this is done over you know, many years and there's, there's a transition period and all the things that were in the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May negotiated or, and could be, indeed, if there's an agreement made with Boris Johnson now, then I think this stuff becomes you know, the, the work of many bureaucratic hours, but that's really what it becomes. The, the problem with us flouncing out the, the, the kind of crash out scenario is that just from a legal perspective thousands of things that were automatically part of UK law because we were a member of the EU and vice versa just doesn't hold overnight and so it's and it's going to happen in an environment of mutual recrimination and, and anger and then I think that's when you have the, the 
dislocation in the short term, but also the political difficulty of rebuilding this stuff. So you're right, many areas we will want to maintain those links, and the Europeans will also want to maintain those links, but they will have to be rebuilt because we will... It's a very legalistic organization, the European Union. I mean, the, you know, it... it, it it follows rules, and if you're not a member state, you'll treat it in a very different way than if you are a member state. And if, you, and, and if that happens overnight from the 31st of October to November 3rd or 1st or the end of January to the beginning of February, it's, it's just, I think this is, this is easily forgotten. There's the sort of, it, the, the laws that were apt one day will no longer be applicable the next day and you can have temporary extensions and you can have this and that but there's an all kinds of things that have to be put in place that haven't yet been put in place and as you can see jason she didn't directly as mike robinson also observed he heard my uh question and answer with her uh she didn't directly answer my question right that the military cooperation between the uk and the eu could possibly potentially frustrate the brexit process she danced around it a bit and gave a semi-reasonable answer, reassuring answer, or understandable answer, I guess you'd say, about some of the nuts and bolts and processes. I guess I'd call it satisfactory to a limited degree. Yeah. Uh, she gets a little out there. I think she gets a bit circuitous and gets wandering out in the weeds a little as she talks. Yeah. But she did avoid the direct point that I asked her right. pretty steadfastly. But this yeah, is because she kind of generalized things and kind of like when you get to a point where you just really don't understand what she's talking about. But what's important to point out too to the audience and listeners is those types of questions being asked, those are very uh, sensitive questions. Yes. That even Mark, that you would ask such a question in a forum at a meeting on the Council on Foreign Relations or. or well, they're, they're a relative of it. The Chicago they're Council relative. on Global Affairs it used to be called the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, like the original New York CFR. Uh -huh. But that name got kind of stigmatized yeah. by investigators who didn't like the CFR in New York supplying so many personnel to government and making the government dance to its policy tunes. Right. And that's the thing is you don't, you don't question or put into question any of those certain topics that would then potentially expose or things they don't like to talk about because obviously there's a lot of things being done secretly and there's this agenda behind it. Right, and what's interesting is even though Zanny, a very intelligent lady, no doubt about it, comes there and talks about Brexit and is well known as the editor-in-chief of The Economist, a very influential uh, international magazine, the thing is, is that even they did not mention her Bilderberg pedigree. Mm. And she was among friends. So I asked her that question in front of her peers, not isolated, not out on the street yeah. corner, not in some studio somewhere. I asked her that in front of about 100 peers of hers. Incredible. These people need to yeah. be put on the spot because exactly. they're exercising behind-the-scenes power that the average person is not aware of. It doesn't mean that they're all, you know, demons or demonic or, you know, evildoers of the worst sort. But they are malefactors and they are agents of change, what's what are called change agents, that most people are not well aware of, and they need, they simply need to be more aware of them. That's yeah. all I'm saying. She may she may very well have some good intentions, and I, I've read things in The Economist that are very erudite and good articles. Uh, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs has a number of laudable ideas, a lot of smart people. But I think more people need to know that they 
are trying to pull the strings as to what kind of governmental structures and policy initiatives we have, and they have more influence than the average person realizes. Exactly. And uh, But though one change that we can point out that actually did happen was that sovereign January 31st where the EU headquarters in Brussels removed the British flag yes. solemnly and walked it out slowly that they were no longer part signifying their Brexit, their exit from the EU. So I thought that to be quite interesting. And so now it's just what time will tell as far as the pressures, what the EU is going to do in response, how they're going to work with uh, and possibly influence Scotland, influence some of the other uh, countries in the UK, and how, you know, and that's a whole another thing maybe we don't necessarily get into now, but of what's next and how that unfolds. Right, and, and the thing to think about is these snags, because in addition... The European Intervention Initiative, the EII, excuse me. In addition to that, there are other additional non-EU agreements that the UK is still a part of with the EU. See the Orwellian thing there? They're called non-EU agreements, and yet they're between the UK and the EU. Kind of a double meaning, a fuzzy thing there going on. Interesting. And Besides the EII, besides the European Initiative in, uh, Intervention Initiative, besides the EII, there are these other non-EU agreements, again in Orwellian language, that may further deepen the UK's relationship with the EU. So, like you say, lots of chains to take off, lots of where do we join and cooperate, where do we separate, will there be enough chains severed to allow Britain to have a full sovereign exit or not? So, yes, there's a divorce, but will the settlement of the divorce, kind of like in human terms, will the divorce settlement work out in the British voters' favor, the voters that approved Brexit three and a half years ago? That is the question we'll leave viewers with at this time. And in closing, I'll quote Nigel Farage. There is a historic battle going on now across the West, as we heard him say a few minutes ago, in Europe, America, and elsewhere. It is globalism versus populism. And you, EU bureaucrats, you may loathe populism, but I'll tell you a funny thing, he said. It's becoming very popular. So with that, let's hope the Brits get what they voted for. Very good. Well, thanks for watching. Hopefully you're informed. Make sure that you subscribe to our channel on YouTube. We'll be coming out on different platforms as well. And also subscribe to our podcast. You can catch them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Bleacher, and others. So stay tuned. We'll be bringing more segments to you that are both national and international issues that you can get involved with that we want to challenge you to take some action as well and get involved in your local area. So again, thanks for watching.